Welcome to this week's episode of From the Lighthouse. Today I'm honoured to be talking with Paige Richards, who joins us all the way from Hong Kong. Paige is Chair of Hong Kong University's Creative Writing and Theatre Programs and the Director of their MFA. She is a prize-winning poet and vaudeville artist, the recipient of a National Mellon Fellowship in the Humanities in the USA, and was also awarded Vermont Studio Writers Fellowship for her poetry and translations. Her PhD in poetry and literature was obtained from Harvard University, and she is chief editor of Slice, a journal of creative writing and multilingual arts. It's a wonderful privilege to share this next hour with Paige as we talk about the changing dynamics of literature and the way history and geography shapes our literary worlds. Welcome, Paige. It's so lovely to have you and thank you for joining us this afternoon. Um, look, I'd love you to talk a little bit about your experience extensive experience in, in publishing and really sort of publishing across borders and, you know, sort of really that experience uh, that's so, uh, so rare and so valuable of, of uh, working in both uh, US and Hong Kong. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, the industry has really changed in the last 10 to 15 years. Um, that's one of the most important things for all of us as writers to recognize. Originally, and when I say originally, no such thing, but let's say benchmarking 20 years ago, for instance, um, the publishing industry did a lot of the legwork so that pre predominantly a writer was asked to produce writing. And it was the publisher who took it from there if that competitive process managed, you know, into a success and achievement, then the publisher then would take it from there in terms of promoting the work, advertising the work, circulating the work. One of the biggest difference then in the last years, especially in the rising digital age, is that um, even before I mention any of the details about the different regional questions of publishing, is that there is much more expectation now, no matter what genre, from poetry to plays to novels to short story um, and then all the fluid genres in between there's much more expectation now for writers to begin already for instance to develop a, a, a website it may be a relatively um, uh, you know clean simple website it doesn't need to be a complex website but the expectation is that the writer already will begin to establish a present a publishing presence and for instance, not only in the past, it was true that writers were expected, for instance, before they submitted work to an agency or to a publishing house to produce and submit work to literary journals worldwide, which we all know about. Such is, for instance, a, uh, most, uh, a rule of thumb is that novels, for uh, a publishing house that looks to a novelist might expect a minimum of three to six stories to have been published already in literary journals. But more to the point now, that's always been relatively true, but now that writer needs also to establish that on a web page. So it's, it's really transformed what it means to be a writer, hasn't it? You know, sort of to go from somebody who could dedicate themselves to their craft, you know, sort of live the kind of perhaps potentially, if not reclusive, then at least, you know, sort of within a community of writers uh, to suddenly needing to be able to negotiate, uh, you know, sort of publishing, promotion, marketing, um, you know, which have traditionally been uh, skills not necessarily associated with the, the, the writing soul. <laughs> Exactly. In fact, they're almost antithetical, aren't they, to the romanticized version of the solitary writer who at best has a room of her own. At best. <laughs> that's, not to mention, that's not to mention the multiplied number of rooms we're to inhabit as a writer. Now in a contemporary context, to stage the, to stage the arc of the, so to speak, career as a writer. You know, one of the interesting etymologies of the word career, which I learned when I was working in a particular context of Harvard. When I was at Harvard in graduate school, there was not an, an impetus to publish highly as there could be at other major research institutions because we were told graduate students who focused on publishing were worried about their careers and careers had to do with the track and that's what horses would run. 
In other words, we were to follow a vocation rather than a career at Harvard. This was when I was there as a graduate student. Meant not, that was what many scholars told us, not to focus on a career where we raced around a, a professional track, but instead to focus on the work itself. It turned out that many of those who followed that to the letter ended up struggling in competitive circles of getting jobs and placing their work because there was so little practice in, in effect um, under that admonition to be able to then become part of the staging process of not just as you're saying the writing itself, but the staging of the writer. And that, whether all around the world, including Harvard, so to speak, all around the world, this expectation has changed. There are top, for instance, Faber and Faber, which is an elite, beautiful press. I was working with some of the editors there for, with another author on, on, a, on a project, and the editors there too had asked, did, were there, um, did, did each of us have a, a website already in, in process? And that's a very elite, traditional, beautiful institution. But, but partially because the, the, the world has changed in a digitalized way, um, of course, top presses, and we'll come back around that, top presses will promote an author well, but that no longer excludes the staging by the writer herself or himself to participate in the process of the career of the writer at the same time as we participate as the writer in the craft. And so it's a world change. It's not so much a press change. It's how information is disseminated. It's how we produce ourselves. So, We're yeah. really living through a sort of tremendous change in, in, in ways that I, I think it's very hard to keep track of. And, and I think that's where some of the challenges lie is that our perception of what, you know, a writer might be sometimes lags behind what the reality yeah. is um, yes. because we are sort of, it, that's very much the experience of, 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 of living and existing is, is that we do live in that lag or, you know, sort of for mm -hmm. many of us who have more, um, I guess, traditional ideas about writing. And I mean, I, I certainly see it in this generation too. I don't, I don't think it's, it's, it's just, you know, sort of perhaps, you know, sort of my older generation, it, it, it's also, mm -hmm present it's a very strong um imaginary that idea of what it is to be a writer and i think those who are quick to pick up how much that's changed are the ones who are really thriving in today's uh in, in environment um and i think that you know sort of thinking through the perceptions of what it might be to be a writer um yes. you know is, is is really an essential part of actually perhaps coming to 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 be that writer um mm -hmm. because you know i think that the disjunction between how we might imagine arriving at that place um yes. and that lived experience and the way that it is much more shaped by geography yes um, than we might imagine uh, because we tend to have a very idealistic view of literature as something that crosses boundary borders yes. Um, yes. without borders, you know, yes. frontiers, all of those ideas. And yet that's not necessarily the reality, even as we live in a really globalized um, sort of economy. It's very interesting, isn't it? The geography in relation to history, because I'm, it's absolutely right what you're saying that the ways in which um, there is that idealized view side with that, sort of update geographically is another update historically, which is the liturgical roots of, especially in the West of the solitary writer, you know, which then comes into, you know, contemporary and modern contexts, you know, almost in a, in a mythological way, that individual writer, that's why we get the proverbial room of what, you know, room of one's own in, in that spirit. But historically, because of the because of this new digital age and because of the amount of movement and because of the multiple selves that we all embody more explicitly than we would have done earlier if, if just because we can travel through Zoom, so to speak, and multiply ourselves on screens. The idea of the, that, 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 that idea of, I was thinking about how hard it might sound to any one of us, myself included, to think, oh, we, can know, we have to be so public when we feel so private somehow, and this demand upon staging ourselves in a career as a writer is, is, is somehow antithetical to our, 
original romanticized view of the solitary writer letting the rest of the world do the work once it's published. But I even think there's a historical erosion of, even in the West, of this idea of solitude and, and the self as entirely <laughs> bounded in, in, in that way by that act of solitary figurement or figuring. Um, it, it, it really does to me go back to the kind of, I mean, if we think about modernism as, you know, as a movement that was international and the loss of the center, whether the center cannot hold or all those ways in which the center is disappearing, I think the self as more fragmented and therefore more multiple has taken a reach even separate from privacy, issues of privacy and issues of the public figure. In fact, the idea of a unified, solitary, single self no longer has the same hold historically as it did when it was derived from a more deeply liturgical past in the Protestant world and earlier Catholic history, but especially the Protestant updates in that in the, in the early Renaissance. Look, you know, and, and the ability to be able to chart some of those changes, um, yeah. and identify that construction as something that is historical, cultural, political, yeah. um, you know, is, is another thing that's increasingly difficult to, I guess, access because, you know, I, I think that there's a sort of a presentism, you know, in a lot of what... Um, <laughs> you know, in a lot of the way that we approach the world as though it's sort of sort of day one. And I think, you know, sort of often that ability to, to sort of, um, you know, I guess identify and deconstruct, you know, sort of the, 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 the orthodoxy um, yes. Yes. is becoming increasingly difficult. Um, you know, those very tools. And I guess, you know, you know, sort of people will talk, I guess, about the hyper plurality of the, the world that we live in where because we're not actually, there's, we're not sharing or creating larger communities um, mm -hmm. in the way that might have happened before. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it, it becomes it becomes harder, I guess, to um, to mobilize and to um, I guess you, you know sort of I guess deploy some of the some of the ideas and the counter ideas and the countercultures in in ways that are you know sort of I, I guess effective. Um, and of course, you know, I think it's really important to I guess distinguish the fact that we are really talking about literature. Um, and literary writing, which, you know, sort of, um, I think does merit having, um, you know, sort of a, a, a sort of a a, to be distinct, you know, from other forms of writing, because even though it might be contested, even though it might be problematic, even though it might be worth challenging, etc., I, I think that it's still, unless, you know, sort of, it's really important to maintain even if it's a fraught integrity and integrity um, that allows us to talk about what's happening to it in this present world. Absolutely. And I think that, I mean, it, it goes back to that question of connecting it to, to my inner ear on what you were saying about geography, because I think part of that extraordinary and moving um, shift from the potential, um, what, what Zadie Smith called a too rigid eye, the letter I, the too rigid identity in, in English language was the letter I. And I loved how she said it's too rigid a letter. Um, and that in, increasingly in our contemporary context of mobility and of um, placement that, that the geography and the history related in that changing um, self-reflection and self-configuration of the writing self in that, that idea of home is so extraordinarily disrupted from earlier conceptions where much of the writing, for instance, when I think of working with someone like Seamus Heaney, as I did for many years when I was at Harvard, even he in a modern world absolutely rooted his sense of self and, and poetic lyric self in not only in Ireland, but in the very consonants of, of the roots of, of where he grew up. And increasingly I find, and especially among those in poetry who are often in that, in that very history of geographical stability, rooting, as in Wordsworth, rooting his work in the Lake District. I mean, there's a very long tradition of poets, especially, or someone like um, William Carlos Williams rooting himself in Patterson, New Jersey, that, that increasingly, because the idea of home has become 
has changed so deeply that that what you were saying, that geographical question of how we perhaps have used to have an I attached to a root. If we think of the letter I, it could actually be a root in the ground. But in a contemporary context, A.D. Smith says, why do we root ourselves to such a rigid I? It equally means our roots may not be as in that way that Seamus Heaney conceived of himself coming from a, as a plant, beautifully erupting from this one location that meant so. Some of us may continue to have it, but many have a very different idea of what constitutes home. And I think that idea of what constitutes home is very key to writers. I once had had Amitabh Ghosh visit us here at Hong Kong U, and the undergraduates were asking, you know, what is this novel about? It was very, you know, and they were waiting for him to talk about a character, and it was a different time, but he said, oh, it's about Bombay. And he, like Seamus Heaney, he immediately rooted it in place. That was the source and origin. But I was talking to another writer recently, a much more, you know, a, a younger writer, and she was saying she can't even imagine what she would answer if she was asked what constituted home. And so, yeah. It's, it's one of those very primal energies of writing, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and yeah. You know, I, I think there's something evolutionary about our, our need to continually mark out home. But of course, right. it's become so fraught because, you know, who can call what home? You know, exactly. and, and the really, you know, sort of, you know, in some sense, this, this particular time has really drawn attention to the degree to which, um, you know, sort of the ability to even call something home is inextricable from privilege. Yes, exactly. Um, in, in ways that I don't think has been in the forefront of consciousness that's right. in, in the same particular way. And right. I think it does have a, it, it does problematize, you know, sort of, what what constitutes the the, the writing self? Um, yes. you know, what what constitutes the story that can be told and how we can frame them? Um, right. And you know, I, I think particularly because there's there's that uh, I guess there's that gap between um, you know sort of what the perception of you know sort of what's the, what the current literary climate is. Yes. Uh, compared to the lived reality of it um, right. and you know sort of where I guess a lot of the you know sort of I, I guess a lot of um, the, the, the world or and obviously when you when I say world what it, it's really constantly talking about is uh, a group of people who count themselves as readers and writers Yes. So, um, yes. You know, sort of the, 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 the sort of the, the effort to try and sort of work out what the mechanisms of yes. that, that world are is, is, is difficult because is it national? Is it global? You know, what impact does your region have? Um, you know, sort of what, uh, what's going to uh, allow you to, to speak and, and who is permitting who to speak? Um, yeah. And particularly in a, a world where, I guess, profit and market drives yeah. so much of the perceptions that we have in ways yeah. that we're often not cognizant of. Yes. Um, you know, I, I think that, that that's one of the things that is, you know, sort of often invisible to people who are starting out. But the further that you go in, the more that you realise that there are these forces at play um, that are completely, uh, I guess, um, uh, you know, sort of a completely uh, incorporated and interwoven into, you know, sort of the, the larger sort of market um, forces at play. That's right. There was a Harvard professor who recently published a book about the difference between those market forces and what constitutes the common good. And if we translate the common good into a, like a, 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 like a, the idea of an identity or, or, or what we might imagine as an essential self, which we would have constituted with the singular before it, that single eye. It is a way of negotiating that instead of talking about the writing self, in those ways we're increasingly talking about the writing selves, plural, which constitutes each one of us. But at the same time, those writing selves that are not sold out to market forces, that said. And so there's a beautiful new negotiation between recognizing our own multiplicities, plural, and at the same time, understanding which parts of those are, have more essential traits that he might call in a public context, the common good for a private context might be our individual sense of um, negotiating those plural selves 
into an authorial identity. And it makes, yeah. Well, I think for that one, something that really interests me about the sort of particular configuration of plural selves is that, yes, you know, sort of there is this new or, you know, sort of this um, current idea of the, the self as, as, as plural, etc. But it's often still very bounded by the, the, the singular and the individual, rather oh. than seeing that plurality as actually being deeply enmeshed in, in community, culture, um, right. you know, sort of, or yeah. the, 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 the sort of in relationality, which yes. I think is, is, is what's missing from, from the picture because, yes. you know, it, it, it's, 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 it's still a, a really sort of, under, even if the, it's still monadic, 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 I guess. If, if, it um, has that undertow. I mean, that's the sort of, the, it's what Beckett always complained about when he was for himself, to himself, that when he was writing about Waiting for Godot, which was, as we know, in many ways, um, from all the scholarship that we've done, and I've written a lot about him, that, you know, he wrestled just what you're saying about the undertow. When we talk about plural cells, it can be undermined by the residual pull, right, of that sort of monolithic um, understanding of it. When he was working on Waiting for Godot, which to a large degree is looking for um, ways that we might reconceive the idea of the liturgical you know, the dependency upon, you know, the identity being a reflection of God so that instead of looking to the older, so to speak, historical, literary, religious myths of identity that God might represent, these two characters at play are organizing new, inter, just interrelationships. But he said, even as he was staging what he hoped to be, a text that would stage a new kind of self-recognition, a new kind of self in relation to community recognition so that these two characters interplay would identify new relationships with each other without the presence of a deity, for instance. He said he still staged it with the tree of knowledge at the beginning. And so he was always, and he used to talk to himself about this undertow of, of, of this re residual core, that as he was writing a play deeply involved, was trying to understand new ways of constituating the, 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 the identity the, not only the plural sense of self, but you, as you're saying, the interrelationships that we forge where we do not rely upon earlier models by which to stage it, the irony of that for himself as a writer, himself as a writer, not even the community, was that he put in the tree of knowledge that went from, you know, one leaf to, to a second leaf. <laughs> and he said he was always trying to think of ways to restage that play. You know, because, but it's also, you know, sort of that acknowledgement of the degree to which we're also constituted by that inorganic matter of the past, aren't we? Yeah. You, you yeah. know, and without that ability to recognize that, without yeah. the ability, and, and in, in fact, it would be, you know, a form of erasure to remove yeah. the tree of knowledge, to pretend that it wasn't there, to pretend that it wasn't constituent, um, is and no. Be able to do without it one day too. Like that's what's really interesting, right? It's like it shows a moment in time, almost in an archaeological way. Perhaps one day we won't be in that stage of because we'll change so many paces from that point on. But it really shows archaeological in that archaeological way where we are in that beautiful literary context of of of, of the evolving identification of the writer and the community. And I, but I guess also in the very possibility of, of producing, you know, sort of literary language, which we always think of is embedded as, as richly textured, as layered. In yeah. essence, literary language really relies upon an inheritance that multiplies the meaning of words. Absolutely. Um, and, and so even while you may not want to you sort of maintain the, the religious dogmatism or the this or the that, in, in yeah. some sense, the echoes and, and the resonances of words and and their multiple you know their multiple um you know sort of meanings is is very essential to the way that literary language functions and it's i think one of the things that has been really deeply lost about you know sort of yeah. our you know sort of i guess in in many circles is is or in many arenas where language is used is is you know sort of the the loss of love of of, of you know sort of the possibility of multiple meanings in a single moment which you know is, is absolutely vital to to any form of literary endeavor and it's kind of like the antidote to you know sort of information and the flatness of and you know, pure the flatness. presentness yeah. of things that you're and talking about 
because and I think one of the things that really fascinates me you know sort of uh, um about uh, I guess your your work and especially in in Hong Kong is is that you know it's it's the way that for so many uh you know sort of people who are for example writing from Hong Kong the English language will be the their language of choice and the stories that they tell are some sometimes preclude them I think from Mm. you know sort of fitting neatly into genres that you know sort of I guess uh, you know, public establishing pub, established publishing houses can can see them fitting in, and so it's either that they need to sort of, I guess, fulfil a, a sort of a, a tokenistic, exotic role, or there's not that sort of um, that room to imagine what is actually um, you know sort of the new forms that are potentially arising out of of the reality, the lived experience of of English as as a you know, sort of a, an increasingly global language. It's so funny, it's such a perfect bridge, that Beckett question, because I was thinking about what you're saying about how, of course, that interdependency and layering is so urgent to that work, which it is. But I also, having lived, you know, and worked here in Hong Kong for many years, I, I can understand now in his search for positioning the question, let's, I'll boil it down to something like interdependency of the characters as opposed to their dependency upon a more singular mythological figure. He's very interested in exploring their interdependencies, all the way from cruelty to to, to friendship and, 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 and more. But in that way of staging those interdependencies flanked by the tree of knowledge, having lived here for a long time and thinking exactly about how not having writers from Hong Kong needing to fit some sort of exoticized status that had Beckett, and and I've also read some of the critical materials from his work as well, that there, when I have lived here a long time, I can see other ways he can stage his play that were not as dependent upon Western mythology and Western history and Western religions. And so what that makes me think is, is that given the materials he had, and that's not to say he might not have thought of something else at the same time. The question of interdependency is much more central in a lot of the texts and a lot of the histories that come out of storytelling, for instance, in Chinese history and Chinese literature. And so where he was struggling to wrestle interdependency from the kind of more solitary question of an individual being made in, in the liturgical history of, of the face of God in that one-to-one mapping, actually the kind of plethora of materials that are already exploring questions of the interrelationships because it doesn't have a binary that's, that sets it in, off in the first place. Also sheds light on what you were saying in that, in, in the MFA in the many places in which we're exploring multilingual writing here in Hong Kong, we can see so many ways in which writers absolutely do not need to fit into any pigeonhole of exoticizing their work but instead can recognize the expectations in the English language, which you and I have talked about before, and then lead the reader through that expectation into something they might not otherwise have known. And that doesn't mean fitting into an old liturgical model, and it doesn't mean fitting into old genres. It means recognizing that there's a path, there's, there's, there's an invitation, shall we say, that's made through a doorway, and that invitation needs to recognize the liturgical histories of English language literature and the non-liturg that not, not that kind of liturgical history in the Chinese storytelling, and if they offer the invitation, they can actually reinvent that landscape. Because it's it's like the English language becomes the raw material with which you can take up new forms and content and um, new invitations altogether. That's right. I, I guess I guess the thing that I I wonder is that you know sort of in in the in the ability to I guess um, you know sort of find that outlet or that reception you know that that allows that to happen and understands you know sort yeah. of what is what's going on in that transformation of English yes. um, you, you know sort of do, do you find that it's a case where you know sort of what what sort of outlet are available, I guess, for, um, you know, sort of writers who are really working at the cusp 
of you know what's to come essentially yeah. um, and, and that's and of course it's not limited to hong kong you know this is, this no. is even, you know it happens within the united states it happens within australia you know all around the world are, are people sort yes. of wrestling um you know sort of with i guess the raw material of language and right. you know, sort of finding new ways of, of um you know sort of making it do what it um what what they need it to do um, and yet it often it's sort of that reverse lag, isn't it? Where often the, the sort of the publishing houses, et cetera, perhaps the journals are more um, fluid in terms of their, you know, sort of their vision of the possible. Yes. Um, whereas I think there is, and there can be a real lag in terms of publishing houses yeah. ability to sort of conceive of what's going on. I'm so excited by that, those thoughts and about what you talk about the cusp, because I think it, there really is that cusp that, um, requires from, from, from the perspectives that I've seen and explored in so many different ways, it requires extra responsibility by the writers to recalibrate language precisely as you're saying as raw material. I, and, and, when I, and, and I want to qualify that in a particular way, which is one of the things that we do here when we're involved with contemporary writers who are precisely writing on this cusp and exploring ways to invite themselves and others through languages and through expectations that may lead them to be able to do what Beckett was in one way trying to do, but all the more as possible in multilingual context. One thing that, that we often talk about is how much history matters. And I, and I don't say it lightly, I, I really, what I mean by that raw material is there's almost no way to understand the material that we're using unless we understand each separate history we're talking about. So for instance, when I'm working here in Hong Kong with multilingual writers who speak English and who speak Cantonese and who speak Putuan, who speak Italian, for those writers, for instance, where we're looking at a story that they're wondering whether it might be fiction or it might be creative nonfiction or how, how we begin, or maybe it's something else that's closer to a genre in, in Chinese history that actually is not named or organized in ways that we constitute in those in, the, in that kind of English diction, we actually go through all their recalibrating English as raw material that comes from the post-Norman conquest era, literally going back into time. And I don't mean that to make it such an impossible task. What I mean is recognizing that English was never English in the first place. <laughs> it was already made up of French, Latin, you know, a, a, a number of languages recognizing that it's coalescing as English that we now know it predominantly took place in liturgical contexts. That is the language that's modern. That's very important to recognize that a word like apple <laughs> then begins to get a connotation, something as simple as that actually can, has no, has, has a deep legacy. So if we pull up an apple in English, we're not pulling up only a fruit. We're pulling up an entire legacy. So too in Chinese, we pull up an apple, but that's constituted by characters. So we're pulling up another legacy. And in that way of understanding languages as different legacies that we pull up out of roots and histories and being attuned and curious about what legacies we're working with means that we can begin to understand that nothing is neutral. There's no such thing, and not that anyone think, but that there aren't simple words or fancy words. It all has legacy coming back to the most simple word like apple, but it has very different legacies. So if we want to invite someone to see an apple in a new way that's not based on the Garden of Eden, for instance, you know, and I don't even mean by summary of storytelling, just associatively. There are reasons when a writer in English uses apple. William Carlos Williams in his poem, this is just to say, uses a plum precisely not to use an apple while using the liturgical language of forgiveness. So he's mixing the expectation it should be an apple, but it's a plum. So recognizing that this raw material all has legacy. And that if you begin to go back to raw languages, raw material and legacy, and you recognize that, for instance, to make a very rough, blunt metaphor to say something like, you know, you might have a cello, but you recognize a cello doesn't have pedals, but a piano does. They're not the same instruments. So you need to explore both instruments. If you're working with two or three, if you're working in three and recognize if you pull out an apple in English, associatively in the subconscious, it's going to have liturgical history at play. Whether it's explicit or implicit, it's in play in legacy. 
And if you pull up an apple and try, it'll have a very different legacy pulled up. And then we can begin to play in turn with construction of a text. Perhaps we tease readers in English to make them think they're going to expect a liturgical, but if we're a multilingual writer has, you know, Cantonese and Putois as well as English, we lead them to another context of legacy and expectation while we draw them through something that they think they understand to let them be properly invited through the door of play and recognize there's something else at literally playing in our ears different from what we might have thought. Look, it's, it's that it's sort of intrinsic quality of, of metamorphosis, isn't it? It Which, is. You know, has just it is. right from, from the very moment. It, it's, it it's that constant unfolding, whether it's, you know, sort of from word to, you know, sort of human to tree to, you know, it's, 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 it's just that ability to, to change and to transform, um, you know, that's, that's, and I mean, I think this is the, 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 the reason, um, you know, why you and I had such a sort of a passion for what literature does, yeah. because it, it is, it is that, that power of, of transformation of changing the possibility on the, the horizon you know sort of that that horizon of communicability which you know sort of keeps um i guess it, it, it keeps morphing you know sort of and that that's where you know you're, you're not seeking to arrive anywhere you're actually just seeking to to you know sort of to continue that that horizon of possibility um expanding that horizon of possibility um and you know sort of the the importance i think that it in times like this that we do and, and and you know in many respects there are these wonderful opportunities to create communities in ways that haven't been possible before because of technology because of the digital you know sort of because of the you know sort of I guess the I guess the changing um you know sort of the changing scape of of uh you know sort of what publishing might be and and what might be counted as as a as as, as a sort of um as a platform for these mm -hmm. these types of writing where maybe they can be untethered in some ways from you know sort of traditional publishing houses because those um I guess tethers are potentially you know sort of weakening in some respects um you know they're as powerful as as we as you know as much as we give them that power um and perhaps in the case of people who are writing in ways that don't you know sort of fit into those um pre-existing um you know sort of shapes and figures it, it's that possibility of, of doing things differently um and and still reaching an audience that will appreciate um oh. and value and create you know sort of alternative value systems um which which is the absolute epitome of intercultural contexts that, and, and the fact that increasingly the monolingual writer, as we were saying, is, you know, is, is moving and shifting into multilingual contexts all the time. And, and, and going back to that sheer importance of, again, something that can sound paradoxically old fashioned, but is not, which is the seriousness of that expertise in what we do, the long study required to do something well. Because if what we're saying can be done well, that invitation to touch upon certain literary histories, draw a reader through that expectation into another context of expectation that comes through a multilingual context or something that's precisely not exoticized but instead reinvented, that takes a lot of study in the, in the, in the highest order. That takes recognizing the study of, you know, both languages or three languages, whatever it is, recognizing, as we say in, inter, you know, in universities, we often talk about an interdisciplinary major, but at the very good um, imperatives of that major, they always ask everyone to take all the majors of the discipline. So you, you can't take, pick, you can't have cherry picking, you can't take a bit of sociology and a bit of biology if you want to be a sociobiologist. You actually have to intensely study sociology and bring top awarenesses from that field, intensely study biology, bring top awarenesses from that field, and then, extraordinarily enough, bring that level of expertise to what we then might call a sociobiologist, rather than picking, you know, cherry picking this piece of biology and this piece of sociology and then declaring ourselves interdisciplinary. And that's why I think I went back to saying, like, I really feel there's this beautiful and huge and wondrous responsibility of writers who are, whether they're monolingual or multilingual, no matter where they are in the world, 
taking up their craft with that, that intensity and seriousness of study because it is precisely how we can do something so well that even a publisher, to, um, so to speak, more traditional publishing house might not expect to respond to something. But if it's done well, very well, it will also ring in the inner ear of that person who's least expecting it. So it's not just that someone who's working in this cusp needs to be published in a publishing house where the cusp is published. Indeed, I truly believe myself as a writer and working with writers all the time, that if things are, have that level of study, expertise, time, attention, care, and love, no less, that that work can indeed break its own boundaries. And therefore, it won't need to be sent exclusively to those publishing houses on the cusp. It can be sent to the most, so to speak, traditional house, and at the same time be recognized because it's, it, it, it has understood through its own level of study and work and revision and practice and increasing attention paid to it, how to go about making something in that way that precisely speaks for itself and doesn't need the, the staging of it to say, this, by the way, because the work on the cusp. <laughs> it doesn't need to do anything of the kind because it's already enacting it and embodying that level of study. It's funny, it, it, there's one tiny one sentence. Um, I always mention this when I'm thinking about this because, and I think I might have mentioned to you, Michelle, when we were talking earlier, but um, my little niece once was being bullied at school about what she wore in class. This doesn't sound relevant, but, and so, she said one day to me, she said, Aunt Paige, I'm going to, I'm going to wear blue jeans from now on and just, and just be neutral. I'm just going to wear blue jeans so they won't be able to tease me anymore. And then I was speaking to her and saying, actually, so that she wouldn't be, you know, sort of disappointed, blue jeans is already a history. There's no way you're going to wear blue jeans and escape the web that everything carries, anything in the arts, anything in this, we, it carries its own imprint, legacy, history, aesthetic, web of inter you know, associations and inter-associations, and that even if she wore blue jeans, she's making an artistic choice. It may, you know, there's no way out, <laughs> not that there should be, but there isn't. And so taking up that beautiful fact <laughs> that whatever we do carries legacy, whatever we shape carries legacy, the more the more that we ask of our readers or the more we ask of ourselves as writers to include the through streams of all of what we know, the more we ask of ourselves to keep studying. I, my, one of my favorite examples was another lecture I had, um, um, you know, when I was studying in poetry, which is another Nobel Prize winning poet. And he just said he had learned more in his 70s than he had ever learned in his 20s. You know, and he was still trying to understand his craft. And he had been studying and had won a Nobel Prize, and he actually submitted his work anonymously so that his work would not be chosen by agents or publishers on the basis of his prize. Look, you know, and, and I think it is so intrinsic to, you know, sort of, I guess, what really um, sort of matters now, where actually it's almost radical to be rigorous in that way. Right. So the constraint that we're working under is, you know, time is money. Um, right. You know, sort of it's productivity and it's, it's sort of has to be measurable, quantifiable in numbers, you know, this many articles, yes. this many yes. books. This is, yes. what, this is what it looks like. Yes. Um, and the absolute refusal of that kind of, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, to, to be under that type of a whip because it is, isn't it? it it's a yes. yoke and it's a whip. And, you know, sort of the, the, the understanding that actually, um, you, you know, humans are really, you know, sort of, I think that they are, they are improved by what they, you know, sort of feed themselves with. And this idea that you are only learning for a certain purpose, you know, training for this, that it's, that it's vocational or that you now know enough. Um, you know, that is the antithesis of, you know, what has created greatness in the past and what will continue to create greatness, which is just, you know, sort of, I guess, that innate desire, need to continue to, to, to learn and to see oneself as a student, you know, as ah, opposed to right. seeing oneself as somebody who has arrived 
because you know that that's kind of the cell the death knell isn't it you know sort of the moment that you think <laughs> no. that you've arrived or that you've become something you know that, that that's kind of what that that idea that it, actually in my 70s you know I, I i pray that i'm still you know sort of seeking you know, yes, exactly. exactly. enough yet you know I think not enough yet. and it's genuinely felt and this same writer said i i would never want to because they were speaking in the interview to him as a master of course because they'd want to know about price he said i would never see myself as a master i always see myself as an apprentice and in spirit, he was over 70 years old at that point, you know, when she said that. But it was in the full form. And if you, if our audience could see us, me and, and me especially shaking my head, it is never outdated. It is never outdated to, to slow down enough to do what we're doing well. And, and, there, and, and because there's such a myth attached to, and, 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 and for some reasons that are quite interesting, actually, but there are quite some myths attached to, those writers who perhaps have talent, who can simply dream up something and then write it, especially in the poetry world with the sort of automated writing and out it comes. Even those who tend to profess that, you know, whether in print or, or, or online, when we can go back to the British Library, we find hundreds of drafts. So the, the, the truth is, is that just what you're saying, that active apprenticeship is lifelong in the most spectacular way and then they asked him, well, what do you gain if you want to be a perpetual apprentice? And I loved his answer. He said, my first drafts are better than they used to be. <laughs> he said, he, they're better, which is excellent. <laughs> that, that mix of, of humility and humor. I mean, exactly. yeah. Perfect. And so accurately said. So accurately said. Look, Paige, it's been so wonderful talking to you. I'd love to ask you what would be the advice, the tips that you'd hand out to, um, you know, sort of people yeah. sort of starting on that writing um, path yeah. or further okay. along. Um, yeah. what, 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 what would you, what would you advise? Okay, so a couple of things, just very quickly. One would be to that if they're working on a manuscript, for instance not to wait after they, because we're talking about different stages, but perhaps if we just for brevet for time, if we talk about a writer who has a manuscript at work in progress, if a manuscript's in progress and maybe, maybe that writer anticipates another six months to a year of completion, for, to make sure already that the writer begins to recognize that some of the chapters can already, as we know very well, be extrapolated and perhaps revised lightly, and I say that not to great end, but to, to make them self-contained. And to begin, this is the point of this, to begin already not to ever fear entering the stream of circulation. Because there's often a desire, you're saying, to look to the end of something or to work towards something as though that has a fixed point. But really, we're always in progress. And it's always good to have more than one thing happening at once. It's very encouraging for ourselves as writers. So while we're working on a manuscript, we also have, whether part of that manuscript in circulation with journals, it may or may not be accepted, or we have another short story that didn't fit into the novel, for instance, we can begin to have that in circulation. Picasso said he was never working on one painting at a time. He always had multiple works. You know, and that doesn't mean a hundred, it just means more than one. It's very encouraging for all of us to frame ourselves and to recognize just what you were saying, not to imagine that we're working to a fixed point where when we get here, we'll be ready. <laughs> we, we, we may or may not, and I love this poet who doesn't yet feel he was ready after the Nobel Prize winning work. But, the, but, but on the other hand, the other flip side is that is we are always ready when we increasingly have knowledge and we're increasingly better as editors to begin to recognize, yes, indeed, we can begin to circulate our work among readers for feedback. So if we can begin to submit our work already in progress while we're working perhaps on a larger work, that can also then begin to develop our website, which is the third part of things that, so the website doesn't need to wait until a writer has published a novel with the press. The website can be a manuscript in progress. Perhaps part of it is then you can put submitted to this journal and that's all right. And then to see, you know, or just submitted without even naming the journal. And then it also gets to show a brief um, biography. Some writers find once, what's interesting is the unexpected. Sometimes people develop these early sites and they realize 
they now want to put photographs on them and add it to text. And they develop a kind of mixed genre they never even anticipated that ends up reinforming their work on their primary text. So back to the sort of idea of not getting reduced to the rigid eye that, that I'm, I'm quoting from Zadie Smith. Zadie Smith, not, not to let ourselves ever get too attached to any rigidity of eye. That there, are, to begin already, it's wonderful to have an aim to imagine that we will sit in a long manuscript, but already to begin to circulate, because in the act of circulation, we'll take ourselves by surprise as well. And we'll find new forms we may not have anticipated that we liked. One of my favorite writers as a poet is Henri Cole, and he was writing from Paris, and he wasn't at that moment working explicitly, he was still predominantly working in poems, but then he had sort of notes from France, notes from Paris. To skip ahead, these turned into a New Yorker feature, which wasn't exactly what he had, so to speak, planned. I won't speak for him, but in, in a sequential way, there was something that happened when he moved and there were shorter pieces, they weren't exactly poems. But in that act, it evolved into kind of a, what we would now retrospectively look at as a more literary context for publishing that work in the New Yorker. So I love the fluidity of ourselves not needing to hold ourselves to a singularity of readiness and instead recognizing on the levels of continuous improvement and recognition of achievement and pages that are better revised, we can begin to, 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 to enter exchanges with fellow writers. Neruda said it so beautifully, saying that it's that to be a writer is an exchange of gifts. That's what Neruda called it. And it's an exchange of gifts. There's no reason it is important to revise a work well so you're very pleased with that gift as we would want to make a gift, something we're pleased to offer. Once we're in a position of being pleased to offer it, to make sure we begin an exchange of gifts with fellow writers because we're here to read each other's work. Audience members around us who are not writers are there to read each other's work. I love the idea of writing as an exchange of gifts. Look, on, on that note, Paige, yeah. thank you so much for joining us all the way from Hong Kong University. It's been an absolute pleasure and delight. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. And I just loved our conversation. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week. Please do remember to like us at fromthelighthouse.org or from wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks again. See you next time.